the Bible, especially the Old Testament, we've talked about this as we've been as when we started our series in Genesis, but the Bible often gets treated like it's this collection of kind of standalone moral stories. And so it gets it gets treated that way. We we can we can moralize scripture and boil it down to Basically, examples. And so we looked at character studies and stuff like that, and we say, okay, these are the good things that this person did. Be like them and do those same things. These are the bad things that they did. Don't do those things. And so we, we continue to treat uh, the Old Testament especially in these what we call Bible stories this way. This is how many of us grew up in Sunday school, and this is how we were taught. And so it's just kind of ingrained in us. But listen, the Bible is not primarily about us. It's not about the things that we must do. It's not about rules we must live by in order to be good people. That's not what it's about. No, it's about God and everything He's done to bring us to Himself. It's about Him. And so the, primarily the Bible is this, this single storyline. We are lost and helpless, but God came to seek and the, the lost and the helpless for His own glory. To bring a people for Himself. It tells us what's wrong with humanity. It tells us what God is doing about it. And it tells how it's all going to turn out in the end. And how history is going to end up. So we, we have to see Genesis in this light. And so when we get to Genesis 4, the message that we're going to see this morning is not, be like Abel, don't be like Cain. That's not it. That, that, the message of Genesis 4 is consistent with the, the message of Genesis 1-50 to and the message of Genesis to Revelation. And, and so we've, we've seen Genesis already. It's this, it's this story of God's sovereign, electing, unrelenting grace. We, we, we said at the beginning, Genesis breathes the grace of God. And so where Paul would later say, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, that could be said of Genesis. And so we, we, we're titling this study, Genesis, from ruin to redemption. And that's exactly what we're seeing. And so, just three chapters into this book of beginnings, we already see that, that human beings have emerged, humanity has emerged as this helpless, helpless and broken and in need of salvation. And yet also, three chapters into it, we already see that God has already emerged, is mighty to save. And, and we, we saw that so clearly last week. So now as we look at Genesis 4, this is more than about sibling rivalry. This is... We, we will see here the depths of our sin revealed and the depths of God's grace made very clear to us. And so we sin, we run, but God pursues. That's what we see throughout Scripture. So if it sounds like we keep saying and seeing the same things week after week, then you're probably very perceptive. And, and if, we, if we are doing that, we're, we're sort of on the right track as we go through Genesis. So three points this morning, like every good preacher, and we're going to spend most of our time on that first point. Um, but the, the first point is this, is that our, our, our rebel hearts have been handed down to us. That, that's the reality. We've inherited that rebelliousness in our hearts. Second thing we're going to see, our sin compounds itself with the culture, within the culture. And then third, our only hope is God doing what we cannot do. So let's look at the first one. First, our rebel hearts have been handed down to us. We'll see this in verses 1 to 16. And we're just going to kind of work through this passage together rather than read it all at the beginning. So remember where we left off. Adam and Eve, because of their sin, they, they were expelled from the garden, exiled from the garden. And Adam's still a gardener outside of the garden. He's still a farmer. Um, but now he's working with very uncooperative ground, which is the ground that we've, all we've ever known. So now there are weeds and there are pests and there are all thing, kinds of things working against him 
in, in tilling and, and working the ground. Eve's still a worker and a wife and a soon-to-be mother we're going to see. Uh, and, and now there's going to be great pain even in those responsibilities. But both are, are adjusting to their new reality. Life outside of the garden. Life as exiles. And so while they're outside of the garden, this is what we see though, they're not alone. That God is still with him and his mercies are still evident uh, to them. And you see right there in verse 1, Now Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain. So he says he knew his wife. It's not just like intellectual knowing. Hey, I, I know you. That's not it. It is it's talking about a sexual union that, that in this case results in offspring. And so just think of this. This birth of this child is this undeserved gift of God's grace. Adam and Eve didn't deserve to take their next breath because of their sin. And here, God, God is, is giving them this son to be born. And, and certainly God's grace is, was seen in the promise that we looked at last week, that Eve, you're going, to have a, you're going to have an offspring who's going to crush the serpent's head. And so, this is, this is the Lord's grace. And so she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Maybe she's thinking, perhaps this is the man. The one, the promised seed, who would bring salvation. And then verse 2, and again, more mercy. She bore his brother Abel. More life, more grace. And so as the boys grow up, we'll see Cain becomes a, a, uh, a gardener, just like his dad, a farmer. His brother Abel becomes a shepherd. And again, we see the, the goodness of God here. Even this cursed earth, even life outside of the garden, it's still providing food for them, or providing for their needs. It's, it's harder now, but by God's grace, he's, he's providing for them. Not only that, the text says that Cain and Abel, they're bringing their offerings to the Lord. And so just because they're expelled from the garden, this garden paradise doesn't mean they're abandoned by God. Just because there's this magnificent angelic being that we looked at last week who's, who's got this sword that's turning in all these different directions and is, is guarding the way back into the garden so they can't get back in and is guarding the way to the tree of life and they have no access. It, 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 that doesn't mean that they have zero access to God. They're still able to bring their offerings to the Lord. And so, here, But here is where we begin to see the rebellious heart that we've all inherited. Look at verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So far, so good, as far as we can tell. Uh, Both of them are bringing an offering consistent with their trade. So you have the farmer bringing his crops. You have the shepherd bringing the sheep. Seems good. So on the surface, their offerings, their worship, they look good. They look similar. Externally, we, we can't tell if one is doing right and the other is doing wrong. There's nothing to, to really differentiate. I mean, they're different, but we don't see anything obvious. It's not like one of them's drunk and cursing and swearing to the, you know, to the allegiance to the serpent or something like that. And the other one's you know, wearing his church clothes, not like many of you today. And, you know, Bible in hand and, and, and uh, with his little coffee cup, you know, whatever the good image we have of a church person. Uh, it, it's not that. On the outside, they look the same. They're both bringing offerings of what their trade to the Lord. But things are not always as they appear. And there's often more going on than we can see externally. And there's a twist in the text, verse 4. And so 
text says, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So they both appear to be doing God's will and offering up to God in, in worship these, these things. But Abel's is received, Cain's is rejected by God. And we're not told how that was made clear to them, how, that they, how they knew that God accepted one and not the other, whether you know, like fire came down and consumed uh, the sheep and the fat portions and, and nothing happened with Cain's offering. We don't know. Did maybe Abel's herd started growing you know, dramatically and just, just expanding and Cain's fields just kind of dried up and stopped producing fruit. And so it was clear that the Lord didn't receive that. We're, we're not told. We don't know how they know, but in some way, God's showing uh, regard. Uh, he's accepting, He's receiving Abel's offering, but not Cain's. Now, I know the question we want to immediately answer is this. Why? What was it about Cain's offering that was so bad, and what was it about Abel's offering that made it acceptable? And, and there are hints of that here. Uh, it's, not, it's not really that explicit, but... And we're going to look at some of those clues in a moment. But the, the why isn't really the focus. That's not the focus. It's not, it's not the main point. What we are clearly told and where the emphasis lies is in how Cain responded. Look at verse 5. Cain was very angry. And his face fell. He's ticked off. And he is depressed over this. But listen, don't... Don't feel sad for him. We're going to see this isn't the response of some of a victim of unfairness. That's not what we see here. This is the this is the reaction of a guilty offender. And so this response tips his hand. It it shows a sinful attitude that's inside of him. And and so God's disregard for his offering isn't interpreted interpreted by Cain as as some gracious uh, help, instruction from the Lord, gracious means of teaching him and helping him. No. I mean, he could have cried out to God and said, God, forgive me. What have I done wrong? I mean, you're, you're, the, you're the Creator. My, my life is Yours. I, I'll do whatever You want from me, Lord. Help me understand. He could, have, he could have cried out to God like that. I live to please You. But instead, he burned with anger. And this shows that in offering this to God, he's not giving himself to God and His ways. He has his own agenda. And that's the, that's the first aspect of, the, of our rebel hearts that comes out here. The, that the rebellious heart, the one that we've inherited, it, it burns in anger over God's ways. It burns in anger over God's ways. Now let's look real quickly. What, what was it about Cain's sacrifice that made it unacceptable? Didn't, God didn't regard it. Does God like meat more than vegetables? Some of us, we'd understand that. And um, Again, it's not explicit. But And I think it's kind of subtle, but I think there are some clues in the text that help us see this. First clue is this. is I think the, there is something about the offering itself that points to the attitude of the offerer. Um, and so Cain, the text says, brought, brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering. Nothing wrong with that. But look the way Abel's offering. He brought the fat portions, which to us, I know in our day, fat is bad. But this is good. These are the best parts. And, and so he brought the fat portions, the best, from the firstborn of his flock. And so Abel gave his first and he gave his best. And we're not told that Cain gave his last and worst, but we, we, he doesn't say that Cain did the same. So, 
But think about Abel's offering. Think, there's a measure of risk involved in it. You're giving your firstborn. You're giving your best. So if he waited until the end of the year after all of the sheep for that year had been born, and I mean that basically amounts to his income for the year, he could have, he could have determined how much to give. So we've had 20 sheep born this year. Let's give the Lord one, two. Let's be generous. Let's give three. We've got, we've got plenty to, to make it. But listen, there's risk if you give the firstborn. Because what if there are only two or three born that year? And so now, I don't want to give God 50%. That seems a little excessive. That's a little exorbitant, right? And so there can be a kind of a calculating mindset in giving to the Lord, making sure you just give what you have to give. And then there's this kind of open-hearted, joyful, trusting, first and best giving. And, and this is what we see in seem to see in Abel. I mean, let me just give you an example that I think we can all relate to. Um, you've been participated in canned food drives before. And so let's just say Fayette Samaritans here, many of you support. I, I realize they put something and saying what they need. But just say, they just say, bring anything, any kind of canned goods. Uh, we, can, we can take anything right now. So what do you do? You go to your pantry, like the very back of the pantry, and it's dusty and dark, and you haven't, it hasn't seen the light of day in years. Or you go to your you know, doomsday bunker, I know who you are, and um, wherever you keep your canned goods, you go, you go there, and you, you're feeling around, and you pull something out, and you say, gross, pickled pig's feet. That's disgusting. And, uh, or canned Brussels sprouts. I mean, this is gross. And how long have those even been in there? Who do, I don't even remember buying these things. Why, why is this even in here? And you say, okay, yeah, that's, that's what I'll give. Well, send that. And, and, and we say, how, how generous. Now, my grandmother loved pickled pig's feet, and some of you may too, but to me, that's disgusting. Um, so that's one way. Or you could look at your canned goods and say, oh, I, that, that one's my favorite. I, I, I'm going to send that. I love it, and I want somebody else to enjoy it as much as I do. I don't know what canned food that would be, pineapple or tomato soup. I like canned tomato soup. Let's just say it. So I I don't think that's ever happened in the history of canned food drives. (laughs) There's a reason they put a list of what they want, because this is how we we would act. It's usually, you know, canned pork brains or something like that, and we're disgusting. Send it. And um, so, so there seems to be this kind of categorical difference in the offering itself. And their hearts demonstrated it through what they bring. I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on you for canned food drives. Please don't understand that. But just illustrating it. So it's not just that Cain brings the equivalent of pickled pig's feet. And it's not just that he brings some of his stockpile of those cans. It's, it's the attitude with it which he brings it. It's his, it's, it's, his offering betrays that attitude. Another another clue that kind of points to this sort of calculating attitude in Cain, and in it's I'm going outside of Genesis to see this, but in Hebrews 11, and we'll go back to Genesis, but Hebrews 11, we don't, you don't have to turn there, but the, the, in Hebrews 11 we find that Abel made his sacrifice, his offering, the text says, in faith, unlike Cain. So what in the world does that mean? He made this offering, Genesis 4, in faith. It's a little difficult to understand, but here's what I think it means. Again, we already saw last week God promised to, God's promise to save the world, Genesis 3.15. Now, I realize 
That's all we know. Seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. It's sort of vague. It's not like John 3.16 where we can, you know, just put Genesis 3.15 on a track and, you know, revival breaks out. Everybody's getting saved. But, but it's just in, in basic form. This we call it the proto-euangelion, the, the proto-first gospel. First gospel promise. But there's only two reasons that people give their offerings to God, make sacrifices to God. Only two motivations to bring a lamb or a sacrifice in the Old Testament or New Testament. One, you can give a, a, to God an offering in response to salvation. It's promise salvation or realize salvation. But, but you're giving in gratitude for God's saving work, His deliverance. That's giving in faith. The other is you can do it being motivated to, as sort of a means of salvation. As a way of trying to get God to bless you. As a, as a way of getting God to reward you. A way of getting God on your side. Getting Him close to you. And so it's, it's this giving by works, we might say. So even that first gospel in Genesis 3.15, that basic bare bones form of the gospel that Abel, that Abel had in his mind, Abel in some way was putting his trust in God's promise of salvation. He's giving by faith. And therefore, there's this open-heartedness about him. He, he, he is offering it in faith. Not so with Cain. You could kind of see the comparison in the New Testament of the, prodigal, or the parable of the prodigal son. And so Cain's like the, the elder brother in that, in that story. Abel's more like the prodigal returned. And so, listen, if you, if you believe you're a sinner saved by grace, if you see your life like, like the prodigal son see his, sees his, then everything after that is gravy. I mean, it's, it's good. And you're, you're, you're offering to God everything and thanks for the salvation, for the deliverance that He's provided. But if you're the elder brother, if you believe God owes me because I worked so hard, I, I have served by my Father. I have obeyed my Bible. I have followed the rules. I've done everything right. God owes me this. If that's your attitude, if you believe that, that you're earning from God, if you believe you're putting God in your debt, listen, the way we know whether we're a sinner saved by grace or whether we're the elder brother trying to be saved by our works is what happens when God doesn't let things in your life go the way you want them to go. When God isn't blessing you and prospering you and, 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 and having things go well, what happens? The elder brother gets absolutely furious. Why? Because they thinks, he thinks God owes him. So when you see Cain looking at Abel and seeing Abel being blessed by God and his offering being regarded by God and, and being blessed more than himself, what does he do? He gets angry. Murderously angry. Angry at Abel? Yes. But primarily, he's angry at God. He's like the elder brother. He's angry that God is proving to be above manipulation. He's, he's angry that God can't be controlled by him, subdued by him. And so we have, we have all inherited the elder brother gene. <laughs> That's what's natural. That's how we come... Uh, pre-programmed. And it's God's grace alone that dislodges that from our life. And so that we can, can, can rejoice in and delight in and, 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 and offer to God as, as thanks and gratitude for the salvation that is ours, but we do not deserve. And so this is, this is I think, part of it as well. Alright, so this rebellious heart that we've inherited 
uh, first we say it, 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 um, it burns in anger over God's way. Second thing we see is it ignores God's warnings. Notice what happens next. Verse 6, it, it reminds us of what we, what we saw in Genesis 3. God coming to Adam, asking him questions. And so here, in His mercy, the Lord is pursuing Cain. He's coming to him. He's not folding his, hand, you know, folding his arms and just waiting. Let me just see what he does. See if he comes back to me and apologizes and grovels at my feet. No, he's trying to preempt the crime before it ever takes place. And God doesn't, and God knows, God doesn't show up the first time and confront Cain and say, How dare you? How dare you question uh, whose offering I regard more than the other? How, how dare you question who I choose to bless? I, don't, I mean, don't you know who I am? Do you know who you are? I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. But he doesn't do that. What does he do? He says to Cain, and just look at the tenderness, tenderness of this. Verse 6, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? Why? Again, God's not looking for information when He asks a question like that. He knows. He, he's not trying to discern and understand Cain's heart. He knows his heart. He's not, he's not trying to figure out what's going on. He knows. What's he doing? He's trying to get Cain to understand his heart. He's bringing him along. He's pursuing him in His grace. God's mercifully coming after Cain. We see the love and the grace of God here. So Cain, it's like Cain runs off his room to sulk. Angry teenager. He may have been a teenager. And, and God has gently opened the door. And He's offering a chance for him to escape this self made prison that he's in. And he and he's and, and Cain's warned that there's this lurking, ominous enemy. He's no longer just in the form of a kind of serpent. No, now he's he's in you. Look at verse seven. If you do well, will you not be accepted? The idea of accept is just we we are uplifted. Uh, your countenance changed. So his his face fall. Will you We'd say, turn that frown upside down. Okay, I know that's a stupid saying, but um, but this is this is kind of will your will your, will your will your perspective not change? And he goes, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. I mean, you can picture the image. I mean, you just get this image of this leopard or or tiger, this predatory animal, and it's and it's crouching in the shadows and it's coiled and just ready to, to lurch forward at whatever, whatever, whatever when, that, when the prey comes in, in, in range. And God says, that's sin. That's sin. Sin is predatory. Sin is deadly. Sin is a presence in your life. Um, sin, sin isn't just the thing we do. It's not just the thing we do. Sin is this presence in our lives. It's, it stays with us. It affects us. Yeah, there, we, we do commit sins, but sin is the, the full picture of sin is bigger than that. It's more pervasive than that. If you, if you commit a sin, sin isn't over. Sin isn't simply an action. It's a, it's a force. It's a power. It's, it's one we've inherited. And so first you start to do the sin, and then the sin starts to do you. That's what is, is pictured here. And, and the, another thing this image gets across is the fact that sin hides. Look at the text. It's crouching at the door. 
It's concealed. It's, it's waiting. Listen, brothers and sisters. The worst sins in your life, the sins that are going to bring the most ruin in your life and in the lives of people around you are, are those that you will not easily see and will not readily admit to. Those are the ones. Those are those crouching sins in our lives. You're in denial about them. You rationalize them. You, you minimize them. You explain them away. There are those crouching sins. So we call Van in his prayer earlier. It was, it was, it was good because he's, he's acknowledging that the subtlety of sin and the way we disguise it. So we, we call idolatry of work. We call it conscientiousness. Or we, we call bitterness. We call a grudge. We call it moral outrage. Sounds so much better. We call materialism ambition. We call arrogance and pride healthy self-assertion. We call obsession with our appearances and looks. We call it just good grooming. And so, so we, we have, and, and so this is subtlety, and, but sin is this presence. It hides and it's, and it's destructive and it's, and it's predatory. It's looking to destroy you. And so God questions Cain. He warns Cain. He, he invites Cain to return. That's what this is. But what, is the, what happens? Cain, he just shuts the door even tighter. He ignores God's warning. And again, this impulse to ignore what God has warned is in all of us. This is the rebellious heart that we inherited. We come by this rightly. And again, it's the grace of God that changes this in us. Third aspect of, of the, the rebellious hearts that we've inherited. It, the rebellious heart takes hatred out on God's image bearers. It takes hatred out on God's image bearers. Now we get to the actual crime. So notice though, it doesn't start with a weapon. It, 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 the murder doesn't start with an act. The murder starts with this attitude of the heart. Cain is sulking. Cain is downcast. Cain is angry because he doesn't get what he wants. He, God won't play by his rules. And, 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 he, and he won't turn to God for help. Even though God's initiating this and, and leaving the opportunity to him. God comes to Cain, questions him, lovingly warns him. But Cain gives no response to the Lord. Notice in the text, there's, there's no answer from Cain to the Lord. He doesn't respond. And he allows his anger to build and build. Sin is mastering him. Just like the Lord said. He blames God, but he can't kill God. So he can kill Abel. He can kill God's image bearer, his brother. So verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. Now, it doesn't say what he said, but I think what's implicit, he's, he's baiting him. He's, he's saying, hey Abel, I know it's been a while since we've hung out. Well, let's go out in the field. Let's have a talk. You, you, you good with that, brother? And so, there's forethought. There's intention. This is premeditated. So he's baiting him out there. And when they were in the field, the text says, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. I don't want to linger here, but just think of... I, I know it's stated in such a brief way, but there's no guns. There's nothing... There's nothing to dehumanize this murder. Or, or to, to depersonalize is what I meant to say. It, this is bare hands. This is a stick. This is, this is violent. It has to be. This is just ugly. And, and up close murder. Cold-blooded murder. The third person to ever walk on the face of the earth. 
murders the fourth person. It's disturbing. And, and note this. This is, this is emphatic in the text. Notice how often the word brother is used in this passage. It's not just Abel, but his brother Abel. It's over and over. Cain talks to his brother Abel. His brother Abel goes with him. He kills his brother Abel. God says, where's your brother? Abel, your brother's blood cries out to me. I mean, uh, there's not that many people in the world to keep up with at this point. And we're just counting them on fingers and toes here. And so... Why, why repeat this so much? His brother. Well, this, this relationship is repeated to show the horror. Show the hatred of the rebel heart. And brothers and sisters, this, this is in us. This is what every single person born inherits. Hatred. Hatred. Fourth thing we see about the rebellious heart. The rebellious heart will, will lie to God's face. He'll say, remember, remember the picture of Adam. Adam's wiping the fruit from his garden, you know, trying to clean his face off, hiding in the trees so God won't find him and catch him. And now his son is in the same boat. He believes he can hide too. And so he, he believes he can get away with murder. Now, think how easy this would be to hide a body. There's not that many people. There's no police force. There's no DNA evidence if you do find the body. I mean, this... This is, this is ridiculous. And so all of that wilderness, he could have, could have come, simply come back and said, hey, I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. I haven't seen him. He was, maybe, maybe he got lost. You know, he's kind of an imbecile anyway. And so he was walking in the woods and just couldn't find his way back. Maybe he was attacked by animals. I don't, I don't know. Nobody would ever question him about it. Except God comes to him. God comes to him. And God asks him, like he asked his father, remember, Adam, where are you? And so verse 9, And the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? What does he say? I don't know. I don't know. He's lying. He's lying directly to the Lord. And then he adds a snarky question. Am I my brother's keeper? Keeper is the same word that we saw just a moment ago in reference to Abel. Abel is a keeper of sheep. So he's saying, sarcastically, speaking back to God, Am I the shepherd's shepherd? Am I supposed to be taking care of him? Isn't that your job? He's your problem. He's not mine. Leave me alone. Am I my brother's keeper? Does he sound like a happy man? Does he sound free now that he was able to give expression to his anger and and commit this act? Does he sound liberated now that he's gotten rid of his annoying brother Abel? No. His anger, his bitterness have been multiplied. Sin is mastering him. He's not a free man. The shackles are even tighter on him. And what does God say? And the Lord said, What have you done? Which is, again, not a question looking for me. Jesus, I know what you've done. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. I mean, that's almost spine tingling. Murder and in the actual shedding blood or in the hatred of the heart, it, it cries out for justice. To God. Justice from God. And, and our, again, what is our inherited bent? Our inherited bent is to lie. It's to hide. But we cannot. God sees. God knows. God hears the cries from the ground. Crying for justice. We're going to come back to this in just a moment. And the fifth and final thing we see in the rebellious heart. It will protest and defy God's discipline. So in verse 11 and 12, I'm going to have to accelerate here, but... 
He says, and, and, and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. So, not just the fact, okay, you're not going to, you're going to, you're going to be a, a wanderer now, but all of his relationships are fractured now. He's like this, he is, he is going to be this lifelong pariah. And, and, and the earth is going to be his enemy. And so Cain's just undone by this sentencing. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wander on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So he, he's falling to pieces. And it's not because he has such compassion for Abel and his heart is broken for what he's done. It's not compassion out of his mom and dad. It's not because he sinned against God. This is self-pity. It's, it's, it's just the terror that he feels of, of his sentence. And he, there's no real remorse here. And so, again, how much do you see this same, same kind of response rising up when us, within us when we're caught, if not unchecked by the Spirit? But even so, God's amazingly merciful. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So Cain's cursed, separated from God, but he's also protected by God. He has this mark, whatever that was. Verse 17, Cain knew his wife, who was also his sister. Uh, and Adam and Eve had many, many, many children and and. So, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built the city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Now, it doesn't say explicitly, but it seems like this, this is almost an act of defiance against God's curse on the end. He says, you're going to be a wonder. You're not going to have a place to put down. And what does he do? He goes out and builds a city. Now, a city is not like metropolis. This is not Atlanta. This is any kind of little walled community. Um, and so this rebel heart, it's, it's passed on. It's passed on to the very first offspring of Eve. And it's been passed on to every offspring since, to us. This rebellious heart. The difference between sinners and saints isn't natural. It's not DNA. It's grace. It's grace. It's the only difference. But apart from grace, sin, it just keeps escalating in people, in population. So that's the second point. We're just going to summarize these last two points here. Our sin compounds itself within a culture. And so it compounds itself. So I know some of you financial folks, you talk about compounded interest. And that's great for retirement savings. It's terrible for sin. But this is exactly what happens. And so in verses 17 to 24, we have... As we see the end of this chapter, and as we'll see next week, chapter 5, there are these kind of two lines, two parallel lines that are running. There's the line of Cain, and there's the line of Seth. And we're going to be introduced at the very end here. And, and so the seed of the serpent, seed of the woman. That's what's being set up here. And, and so Cain's line is in another area, and they have culture and civilization that's kind of growing up, and Seth's over here, and people are being born and dying, and, and they're calling on the name of the Lord. But, so there's this paradox in these, in these last verses, 17 to 24. So this, this culture is advancing, it's increasing, the population's growing, and at the same time, it's deteriorating. It's rising as it's falling. And, and that's, that's what you see. And so Cain's descendants, you'll see, they're the, they're the fathers of all of these wonderful advances in technology and animal husbandry and music. music and they create musical instruments and, and, and you know, they come up with metal instruments and stuff like that. And so 
So Moses, the, the human author, acknowledges because they're benefiting from those things in worship and warfare and all of life. And so he, he says they've, all of these good things are happening, but at the same time they're in this moral free fall. There's this rapid decay and sin is compounding itself in the culture. Polygamy. Lamech takes two wives. This just godlessness, violence. It's, it's escalating. And so we, we, we understand this. We can see today and we can see in history cultures can be advancing and deteriorating at the same time. Look at Nazi Germany and here they are with all of these incredible technological advances for the purpose of, of working absolutely un, unconscionable wickedness. And, and yet we, we today benefit from some of those advances. We, we can look in our own history, American history, all the growth and development in the early part of this nation's history, but it's on the back of slaves. Industries growing, technologies forming, and infrastructure being built while human beings are being trafficked, bought, sold, treated as property, totally dehumanized. and, And so, Canaanite culture, it's it's dominant, and has always been in the world today. And so. The, the picture really darkens in verse 23 to 24, just real quick. And so you, you, you see, again, they have all these contributions to civilization. And then the Lamech breaks out in this song. I, he's just like pounding his chest. I just, he's, I, I don't know, he doesn't say. I just picture this drunken man wearing a loincloth, you know, sword in his hand. And he's dancing before his wives, singing this song. And the song is this, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man, which is the word for a child, a little boy, for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. I mean, this is a this is a worse nightmare for these women. This song of violence, violence glorified in the context of marriage. He's boasting about killing a young boy for for hitting him. That whole sevenfold, seventy-sevenfold. Remember. The Lord swore anybody who anybody who hurt Cain, they were, vengeance was going to come on him sevenfold, which is that perfect number. But but this boast of Lamech said, "I'll do more." <laughs> vengeance, violence. This is this became the family business in Canaanite culture. So we see this sin is compounding with interest over time, and the trajectory of our rebellious hearts and 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 our culture. It's always. It's always this way. And the, the, it grows more and more compounded and affects more and more people, but for the grace of God. So this is the question. How will it ever stop? How will it ever stop? Well, our only hope is, that, again, God doing what we cannot do. It's God doing what we cannot do. So we step back. The very last verses is like a flashback. What about Adam and Eve? What's been happening with them? Well, all this was going, civilizations growing and wickedness and advances. What's happening? Verse 25, Adam knew his wife again. Mercy. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So just, just think of this image here. There's, there's this escalating, this amplification of sin in verses 17 to 24 and this grotesqueness and the violence and it's polygamy and it's all growing and it's loud and it's, it's, it's riotous. And then there's this little subtle note at the end. She bore another son. 
And people began to call upon the name of the Lord. It's like this loud, blaring music, and then there's this little flute solo. Uh, that, that's subtle, and it's beautiful. And this is how it ends. And, and the tension we're supposed to feel is, how can something like a few people calling on the name of the Lord compete with that? How can, how can, how can it, that possibly contend with the violence and the, and the wickedness and the, and the debauchery of the Canaanites? How is that possible? And this is, the, this is where we keep bumping into the same theme. We can't, but God can. That, that our hope is in God doing what we cannot do. And this is what calling upon the name of the Lord is. It's calling upon Him in faith. It's looking for Him to do what they can't do for themselves. And, and this we'll see this played out the, through the rest of the Bible. That, that the weak and the lowly and the unable, they're being pursued by God and then they call upon God in faith. And He answers. That's what we see in the Gospel. It's in our weakness. It's in us recognizing, Lord, I can't do anything about my sin. I'm in desperate need of what, for you to do what I can't do for myself. That's the essence of it. So we call on His name, crying to the only one who can save us. I said I want to come back to this and then, and then we'll be done and we'll sing. I, I come back to Abel's blood crying to God from the ground. I want to come back to this because the New Testament comes back to this. God is a God of justice. He, he can't just shrug at sin. He can't say, ah, it's not, no big deal. Ah, just let it go. He, he is a just God. Innocent blood always cries out to Him to make it right. And so the, the cry of Abel's blood was heard by the Lord. But this is what we see in, as Scripture unfolds. Years later, another man who bore some, some of the same similarities of, of Abel, to Abel, he came into this world, he came into a nation that was filled with Canaanites. Filled with Cains. People who were religiously observant, making their offerings to God, honoring the sacrificial system, yet they weren't doing it by faith. They, they weren't doing it out of gratitude for the promise of salvation. They, they, they were doing it to manipulate God, to put God in their debt, just like Cain. And so they hated God, in reality. And they hated God's man. The book of Hebrews says that when Jesus shed His blood as an innocent victim of injustice... His blood cried out. But it's in a new way. Hebrews 12, verse 23, You have come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's interesting, isn't it? What's he, what's he talking about? So Jesus Christ was, in, in a sense, the, the ultimate able, because He's the only person who, who, who came into the world who was truly righteous. He was perfectly good, perfectly righteous, perfectly loving, and the Cains of the world couldn't stand it. So they killed Him. But He didn't only die as a victim of human injustice. He also died by design. He died in our place. Isaiah 53, He died to pay the penalty for our injustices. And so in Jesus' blood, it cries out for justice and mercy. But it, it speaks this better word than the blood of Abel. What does that mean for us, practically? Okay, that's nice. Makes sounds like a great song. But let me just give you an example from my own life, and maybe this will resonate with some of you. During my early years as a Christian, I'm thinking a lot about this this weekend even, there, there were real struggles with doubting God's forgiveness and His love. Acute. I, I, I was battling lust as 
Most young men do. This is pre-internet pornography. We still battle lust. And and there was a host of other sins too. High school, as a young believer, every time I went to God to ask for forgiveness, there was this nervousness. And, and, And I was ashamed. And I'd confess my sins, but after I was done, I was still anxious. And I, I'd memorized 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us your sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so I'd quote that. I'd say to the Lord, I've sinned. I ask for forgiveness. Please cleanse me from this unrighteousness. This is awful. And then I'd make a commitment to the Lord. I'll never do that again. And then what would happen? A few days, weeks, hours later, I'd done it again. And I'd get back down on my knees, pray again. I'd Time would pass, do it again, get back down on my knees. And as frustrated as I was with myself, I knew that God was more so. So I'd just say to him, Lord, be merciful. Just be merciful to me. And there was this gnawing thought that, 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 that was hard to shake. Here I am. Justin, you're in your teens. What, what about in your 20s? Is this still going to be with you? Is this in your 30s, in your 50s? You, what if you're still doing this? Will God finally say, hey, I'm not going to keep being merciful to you indefinitely. And I regularly wonder, is, is God still for me? Is, will He still forgive me? Is there any hope that He will bless me in my life, in my future? Later, by God's mercy, as I studied, began studying the Scriptures and, and understanding more the Gospel and began to understand, really from Romans, but understanding the truth that Hebrews 12 talks about it, when it says that Christ's blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, that, that Jesus' blood, like all innocent blood, was, is crying for justice. But what, it, what, what does it say? What does it say to us? In a sense, Jesus is standing before the Father's throne and saying, Father, your law demands justice. These people have sinned. The wages of their sin is death. But for all who believe in me, I have paid it all. There, there is my blood crying for justice. And here's how it cries now. Justice demands that you never, ever, ever punish them again for it. So everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, everyone who says, Father, forgive me because of what Jesus Christ has done for me, dying in my place, you know what that means? God never condemns you. Why? Because that would be for God to get two payments for the same offenses. That would be unjust. Because Christ has paid it all. 1 John 1.9 doesn't say if you confess your sins, He is faithful and merciful to forgive your sins and to cleanse you in righteousness. It says faithful and just. Jesus is not standing before God interceding for us on the basis of mercy. Asking for mercy. He's not saying, here's Justin Culbertson, he sinned again. Father, give him one more chance. Please be merciful one more time. And God says, okay, One more time. If that's the case, I should have been nervous. I should have been ashamed as that teenager. I should be nervous today more than ever. Because I've just sinned and sinned and sinned. But now I realize this is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, Justin Culbertson has sinned again. And it grieves him. But he says, I'm not asking for mercy. I'm demanding justice. 
Because I've shed my blood for his sin and you can never condemn him again. Open his eyes. Help him to see sin. Help him to see your grace. Cleanse him. The justice of God is inflexible. And that's the greatest news we could hear. Because Jesus' blood, it cries out for justice on our behalf. It speaks a better blood. Not, not justice that's against us anymore, but justice for us in Christ. That's great, great, great news. We need that better word. So we're going to sing in just a moment. And, and we're going we're to see the, the blood of Abel's crying out, justice, avenge, sin, 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 guilt, guilt, guilt. That's not the final word. There's the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. And we're going to sing, What can wash away my sin? It's nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's let this word be spoken to us. Let's pray. Father, would you help us as, this, as we sing this better word over one another, Father, and to one another, that you would help us to and rest in it today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.